1: welcome to go
0: green radio everybody so glad that you could join us our guest today is Fred rich and he's got a brand new book out it's called getting to green a bipartisan solution to saving nature and uh, boy during this presidential primary season uh, it seems like bipartisanship is is a lost word in our vocabulary but actually his book has some very solid recommendations and I'm so pleased to share his thoughts with all of you our listeners of go Green Radio. So, welcome to the show, Fred. So glad to have you, and congratulations on your new book,
2: Getting to Green. Well, thanks very much. The The official publication date is Monday, so you got to jump on things.
0: <laughs> I got the advanced copy. <laughs> well, it was terrific. I read it from cover to cover, and I wanted to ask you, just for the benefit of our listeners out there who might be wondering, hmm, is this book for me, who exactly is is your target audience for this book? When you imagine your readers, who are they?
2: Well, you know, I think that really the book is for anybody who cares about climate change or any other environmental uh, issues, which I think is pretty much everyone or should be everyone, but but also people who are... um, Frustrated with the lack of progress, you know the book is just a lot of people, you know, have this view that we we know what the problems are. We know what the solutions are. so what's wrong? you know why why aren't we making any uh, progress? and so if, if 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 that's a question that you've asked yourself, that's really the question that the that the book addresses. And you know there are two specific groups, Jill. also, I guess I should say that it's addressed to, you know, a lot of it, um, addresses professional environmentalists, you know, people who lead green organizations. There's some, you know, it asks them to think about what they've done and how they've done it. And and also it addresses uh, Republicans and conservatives who, you know, might not feel that their politicians are exactly where they are on these issues. But um, uh, so, you know, I, I think there's something there for almost everyone.
0: I agree. Uh, And having read the book, I can honestly say um, that I think that there are a lot of folks who, you know, not just folks in the middle who are wondering what's going on, but people who are um, really leading out in environmental movements, who are frustrated by the stalling of progress, I think they'll find a lot of solid solutions in your book. You know, I'm not afraid to say it. I am 46 years old. And for as long as I can remember, green legislation has been led primarily by Democrats. And there are a lot of people in America who think that it's always been that way. But your book explains that that's simply not true. Talk to us about the role that Republicans used to play in environmental protection and give us some specific examples of instances where they showed leadership in this area.
2: You know, John, I'm so glad you 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 sort of started there with a, the sort of personal idea that you know what you what is the reality that you've always known, and you know one of the premises in the book is that we all have the tendency to think that the status quo is somehow permanent, right? That what we see in front of us or what we have seen in front of us is is sort of going to be part of the permanent landscape. Forever. But if you if you zoom out a little bit into into history, you know, we see major shifts in in politics all the time. I mean, I I guess I'm a little older than than you are, but when you know, when I was young, Congress was filled with uh, conservative Democrats from the South. Right? Mm -hmm. That's the way the world was. Well that that changed, right? When when I was born, most most Americans couldn't imagine uh, an America without segregation. And yet, here we are, 40 years later, and we have a, an African American president. So, it's really fundamental to my message: is that profound changes in political positions and and alignments, uh, you know, can happen all the time. And and in, and that's why early in the book, as you as you say, I, I do start with this bit of history because. From the 19th century on, you know, we basically had conservatives being the leading advocates for conservation. We all we all know about Teddy Roosevelt, you know, the great Republican president early in the century. Uh, uh, you know, really put put conservation uh, uh, on the political um, map. But you, you know, one one way I think to understand just how different and, and, and uh, how, how different things were not so long ago is today we have nine pieces of federal legislation that really make the, the, the framework of federal environmental law, and they were passed mainly during the 70s and 80s. So I'm talking about, you know, Superfund Endangered Species, Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, all that legislation. So if you look at those nine pieces of legislation, you look back in the 70s and 80s when they were passed, uh, as I did, every single, well, not every single one of them, almost every single one of them had unanimous support of Republican senators in the Senate, and 60 to 85% of Republican congressmen voted in support of those bills. Wow. Uh, 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 you know, those are just the facts. Uh, uh, and it wasn't just that they supported things that were being led by Democrats. It's really interesting. You know, Nixon was terrified that Democrats would get out front on, on the environmental issues, And Nixon created uh, the EPA on his own motion. I, I just find that so richly ironic because here you have a Republican Party, uh, you know, great, great bulk of which would like to see the EPA eliminated. Well, it was their creation, uh, you know, in the in the first place. So really, the, the the message here, Jill, is that the what we've seen in the last twenty twenty five years really should be viewed as an aberration not somehow the permanent or immutable, you know, position of conservatives and Republicans.
0: Absolutely. Now tell us what happened. What was the pivot point? When and why did Republicans veer away from environmental protection legislation and leadership?
2: Yeah, well that
1: <laughs> that's
2: you know, that's a sixty four thousand dollar question because until we can understand what happened and why it happened, it's hard for us to think sensibly about how to had to change it, and, and uh, you know, and I call that separation in the book, you might remember, I call it the great estrangement, you know, when yes. when did the right and the left sort of veer apart on, on environment, and it, it, of course, it didn't happen cleanly, but the real break was in the mid-90s, sort of 1994, the, the Gingrich, you know, contract with America, uh, and it was really fueled sort of at the time by this, the rise of what's... What's often called movement conservatism, um, when when all of a sudden the sort of conservative ideology, you know, took a big lurch to the to the right, and and this group that came in in the in the mid 90s, you know, started to see environmentalism really as, as as a kind of socialistic, you know, overreach. You know, they they. They thought it was inconsistent with this very extreme view of private property rights, uh, they, 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 they had. Uh, uh it, 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 it was this, uh, ideological shift to the right that, that all of a sudden made their prior support for, for environmentalism, uh, uh, much more difficult. And, and of course, I mean, that was kind of just on the ideological sense. What we, what we really also saw at the same time was the, the, you know, the rise of the hyper-partisan media, like, like, Fox News, and not just the rise of, you know, partisan media sources, but all of us kind of retreated into these bubbles you know, where we, where we yes. started to get all our news from, uh, you know, the people who uh, uh, agreed with us, and, you know, we, we got cut off from the opposing uh, uh, view, and this, of course, is what, in part, you know, allowed this sort of sense of unreality to, 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 to develop, and, 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 of course, you know, you can't answer this question without talking about, Money, because if you're going to talk about politics, you have to have to talk about money. And you know, we had uh, large amounts of industry and ideological money. You know, exemplified by the activism of the Koch brothers, uh, uh, really put behind this uh, this this uh, this shift to the right. So, you know, that's basically what what happened, and that's you know roughly when it happened. And it's starting the mid '90s.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, your book gives some examples of Republicans who, despite this um, party veer to the right and veering away from environmental protection, who, in spite of that, tried to show leadership in environmental protection at the right. federal level right. during this right. era right. of hyper partisanship. And you talk about what happened to them. And I'd love for you to share a couple of those stories with our sure. listeners.
2: Sure. You know, and I told those stories because, I mean, in a sense, they have sad endings, which is that these outbreaks of bipartisanship were crushed. <laughs> but, but the very fact that they happened, you know, gives us an image of what can happen again. So, you know, basically, if you think back, it's not so long ago, between 2006 and 2008, when, you know, some federal action on gr- greenhouse gas emissions seemed inevitable. Everybody was preparing for, for, for cap and trade and so forth. And you had... Republicans teaming up to co-sponsor climate bills. You know, McCain, uh, Mm -hmm. in 2003 and again in 2005, he co-sponsored a you know carbon cap and trade bill with uh, with Democrats. You know, he he proposed uh, uh, climate action as a key part of his 2008 presidential uh, platform. Uh, You know, Newt Gingrich uh, published uh, a book called Contract with the Earth, and it was sort of promoting uh, conservative. Uh, environmental agenda. We had people like Lindsey Graham uh, from South Carolina, uh, who came out uh, strongly uh, in in favor of climate action, and a GOP congressman named named Bob Inglis. So, but but then you ask, of course, the key question. So, what happened to all these people? Well, it, you know, it's just really remarkable. I mean, obviously, uh, 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 you know, the 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 efforts, the bipartisan efforts to advance cap and trade, really got demolished by what happened to politics after 2008, and of course, uh, uh, Waxman-Markey failed in in 2010, but it's amazing, if you look at these other people, Gingrich, within a year of publishing his his pro-environmental book, published a Mm -hmm. second book called Drill Here, Drill Now, and Pay Less. He just took (laughs) a 180-degree reverse course. Lindsey Graham got censured by the South Carolina Republican Party for straining for the party line on, on climate change. And Bob Inglis, who was a rock-solid you know, evangelical Tea Party guy, six terms in, in office, the minute he spoke up and said, I think we need to do something about climate change, he was primaried from the right and lost his seat.
0: Well, and and I think you know Christy Todd Whitman is another example of someone who, as President Bush's Secretary of the Interior, tried the same thing. She was a former governor of New Jersey, a very popular politician, and um, and and a very similar thing happened to her as well when she tried to work with industry and tried to bring about some um, market-driven changes. Even that wasn't good enough um and yeah, we saw yeah. yeah we saw damage to her career as well and interestingly you know that was about the same time that i was running for state assembly here in california as a republican and i actually was the communications chair for the mccain campaign during the primary se- season in 2008 oh <laughs> so i was right in the middle of everything that you were just talking about fred <laughs> and uh, so i can well, remember what well, <laughs>
2: You know, I'm so glad that you raised uh, 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 Christy Todd Whitman. I'm a great fan of, of hers. And if your listeners really want to get some deep insight, she wrote a book called It's My Party Too, which yep. is a kind of political memoir. And I, I, quote, uh, I quote it quite a bit in, in, in my book, but it's very, very revealing of what happened to people who tried to occupy the center uh, and, and uh, promote sensible uh, policies, and it's you know, and it was discouraging, and she was she was discouraged, no question about it.
0: Well, and I actually, she came out to do a fundraiser for my campaign, and we got to talk about that quite a bit. And so I could go on for days. I won't do that. We've got to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, what actually has been going on in the environmental movement, in the green movement since this time, that maybe isn't as palatable to mainstream America and what some solutions would be for them. So don't go away, folks. We've got much more with Fred Rich right after this.
1: For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Fred Rich, and he's got a brand new book out called Getting to Green. Saving Nature, a Bipartisan Solution. And during the previous segment, we were talking about how, you know how a lot of folks in the green movement, when the word Republican comes up, they get an acidic taste in their mouth. Well, it hasn't always been that way. There have been uh, quite a bit of Republican-led environmental protection uh, pieces of legislation and federal action over the years. It's only been in the last couple of decades that this hyperpartisanship partisanship has driven uh, the Republican Party and the Green Movement so far apart. You know, Fred, during the time when Republicans were beginning to change their stance on environmental public policy, the Green Movement also underwent some changes. Talk to us about how that movement began to veer left.
2: Right, Jill. I think it's it's a, it's a, such an important point because when we when we ask you know how did this estrangement happen you know it's a divorce how did this separation between the Republicans and the environmentalists happen? Yes, was it was 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 movement conservatism uh, you know in this sort of market fundamentalism the precipitating cause? Yes, but was there also some blame, uh, if you will, on the environmental side? You know, yes. Uh, I mean, one thing that happened is, of course. And this is natural as soon as 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 people on the right started jumping from the movement, the movement of course drifted to the left. Uh, that was bound to happen when you when you lose uh, a lot of your supporters and participants from the right but But there were some other things that were more profound, you know. It's absolutely true that in the early days, uh, the rhetoric of environmentalism uh, appeared to be, you know, against growth, against economic growth, against capitalism. And over time, you know, the movement really was perceived as increasingly hostile to 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 capitalism and to to business. I mean, uh, you know, you know, we used to talk about this thing called the IPAT formula, which says that environmental impact is a product of population uh... affluence and technology the thing is that every time you have an influence increase in population increase in affluence or in, or increase in technology you get environmental damage well you know that's not really a winner politically. <laughs> I mean, you know, to say that we're against we're against people we're we're against wealth and we're against technology, uh, and and uh, so and and this goes to the present day. I, you probably have covered this, Jill, in your previous sessions. But you know, Naomi Klein just wrote a book called uh, "This Changes Everything," where she says that. Uh, uh, You know, we cannot possibly survive uh, uh, climate change without ditching uh, capitalism. Uh, You know, even a guy like Gus Speth, who was the dean of the Yale Forestry School, you know, in his sort of last book, said, uh, "You know, we the the model of the international corporation and capitalism is not consistent with the survival of the planet." So, you know, when the right, when the when the right uh, the right hears that, and the right is obviously particularly sensitive to it. And, uh, and of course, in my view, it's not representative at all of mainstream environmentalism, which understands that economic growth and environmental sustainability go hand in hand.
0: Absolutely. Well, and the fact is, you know, there are a lot of folks in the environmental movement, maybe not as uh, celebrated <laughs> and, and, you know, as, uh, as vocal, but they see technology and market growth that is done in a sustainable way as actually part of the solution to some of the uh, cleanup that's needed, to some of the, you know, uh, abnegation of of environmental degradation. Um, So I think that, you know, there really is a more centrist message. And in fact, your book talks about the attitudes and policy preferences of everyday Americans and how it seems to be a bit out of sync with both the right and left. Talk to us about all the everyday people who've been caught up in the push and pull of the politicization of um, environmental protection issues.
2: Sure. Well, you know, it, it's a very interesting uh, uh, poll result that a lot of Greens, uh, including myself, have talked about for years. And it's true that when, when you ask uh, Americans, uh, you know, do you care about clean air and water, right? Do you have environmental concerns? Do you consider yourself even an environmentalist? Routinely over a long period of time, 70 to 80 percent of Americans uh, say that, you know, they, that they care, uh, which is hardly surprising, right? How can you say you don't care about clean, <laughs> clean water and clean air and your, <laughs> your children's health? But but the thing that's really interesting that we haven't focused on enough, in my opinion, is when the, the same pollsters go back and ask ordinary Americans, okay, but how much do you care, right? How do you rank the things that you care about? And there's a long series of polling that Pew has done where they take – 16 things that Americans say that they care about, and then they ask them to prioritize them. And there, the result is very different. You know that environment comes in dead last out of 16 out of sixteen things, right? right. And you know, in a sense, when you think about it, it's not that surprising. Of course you care about your job, and of course you care about your children's education, right? We all have... The, the priorities of of ordinary living, but the the problem with having environment come in in last is that it it doesn't that that, that caring doesn't translate into political action. and I, I guess the the one thing i I would add to that is that there there are signs of of hope because we're really seeing some changes in the numbers, especially on things like climate change. and I, I think as the demographics of the country change, you're going to see that happen. so so, for example, I'll just give you one statistic, Jill, which I think is very interesting, uh, you know, if you just look at voting age Americans under 29, so between voting age and, and, and 29, um, you know, 67% of them say that climate change is a serious problem. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it starts to look very different. You know, we start to have a, 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 a demographic slice coming up that not only cares, but actually prioritizes uh, some, of these, uh, some of these issues.
0: Well, and I think part of the reason for that um, prioritization problem with environment is that we haven't done, and when I say we, I mean all of us who are involved in this movement, right, left, and in between, we haven't done a good job of linking the environment to other things like jobs, like education, Um, and the fact that we are absolutely reliant upon the things that the environment provides um, in order to function as a, a strong economy, and and you know to have uh, clean and healthy schools for our children to be educated in, I mean, all of that has to do with environmental protection issues, and we haven't done a great job of showing that, in fact environmental protection is not something that is separate. It's something that's a part of so many other things that we care about. And I think that's part of the issue. And in fact, the US Conference of Mayors talks about this issue quite a bit, because they have started to take matters into their own hands to the extent that they can. Many uh, mayors have been on this show, and they've talked about how, yes, climate change is a global problem, but it's going to be felt at the local level. And actually, that local elected officials will be the ones who will enact public policy to help communities adapt to climate change so that people can continue to thrive and survive and local economies won't be adversely impacted. What are your thoughts, Fred, on the effectiveness of local
2: ordinances and local legislation? You know, I think they're completely in the vanguard. You know, they are are going to lead us uh forward and and you know one of my big message to environmentalists is you know pay attention and get comfortable with that. You know the, the environmental movement has has had this long standing kind of preference for big ideas right, and mm-hmm. big global solutions i mean look at look at climate change over thirty years. you know what were our priorities? You know big international meetings, right treaties, global solutions, right. And, right. you know, did any of that work? No, none of it worked, right? The we, we, uh, Senate rejected the Kyoto Treaty. Even the people who signed up for Kyoto didn't meet their emission targets. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, Copenhagen was a failure. Um, there, there was, there's been this hostility in the environmental movement to incrementalism, right? You're not right. doing enough. It's a, it, it's a kind of glass half-empty view, which I really reject. I mean, people right. are motivated by by hope. I mean, the gla- you know, you have to point to the glass being half-full. And, you, you know, just last night, Jill, I don't know whether you heard the debate between Clinton and Sanders that occurred in, in New York.
0: I watched every fascinating. minute of it.
2: <laughs> What's that?
0: I watched every minute of it.
2: Oh, you did. Okay. Well, you know, for, for for you and all your, if your listeners weren't 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 listening, you know, one thing that was really fascinating is that uh, we saw this debate over incrementalism, right, which is part of what you're asking about with the local, you know, break out. Whereas, uh, 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 you, you know, Clinton said, "Look, we have to find doable solutions. We have to make." Progress where we can, right? If we can't have the big solution, then let's take the small solution. If we can't have a federal solution, then let's work it at the state level. And and of course, you know, and Sanders actually accused her. He he accused her of incrementalism, you know, as if it was a sin. And I, you know, I think that she's absolutely right. Look, look at look at where we've made progress in global warming. It's California. It's California Cap and Trade. It's you know Reggie uh, in the Northeast. It's countless communities around the country. So. You know, this, this is where the leadership is going to come, uh, and it, it really, I, be, I believe that this movement is going to move forward from the bottom up, not the top down.
0: I agree with you. I mean, I think that that is already happening. And I think that, you know, in as much as I live in California, and I've seen the impact on even the auto industry with AB32 that was, you know, passed back in 2006, and just how that has been rolled out from a policy perspective. Uh, Of course, California is a big state, so we can influence entire industries this way. But um, I'm pretty encouraged by the way that the the tail has wagged the dog, so to speak, with some of this legislation that we've seen. Now, you write about the fact that climate change is the ultimate wedge issue, and I'd love for you to talk to our listeners about why that is
2: true. <laughs> okay. Well, um, you know, it's a depressing story, Jill. I have to say, and I, I'm, you know, I'm an optimistic guy, and this book is looking forward for solutions. But it's important to understand. You know, is it before climate change, you know, we had some real acrimony. You know, there was uh, around things like endangered species and federal land use, but but it really it really was child's play. You know, compared to what, what subsequently developed in the in the climate wars. You know, the, and the climate wars took us to a new place of 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 partisan uh, disagreement. You know, and and here here's the thing. It, 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 before before climate change kind of had this wedge effect, we, we used to – there wasn't a debate about the goals, right? I mean, if you said to a, 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 a conservative who was opposing a piece of legislation, what, you know, don't you want clean air or clean water? They would say, no, of course I want clean air or clean water, right? The, dis- the disagreement was just over what type of action was necessary to take. You had the left, you know, often promoting regulatory solutions, and you had the right looking for market remedies. And I think the best example of this, you know, which is sort of a contrast to what happened on climate change is what happened on acid rain in 1990. You know, you had George H.W. Bush, you know, elected saying he was going to be the environmental president. You had uh, a terrible problem with uh, acid acid rain, uh, you know, destroying the eastern forests and acidifying the waterways. Uh, and, and what happened? You know, the, 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 the Republicans didn't say, you know, acid rain doesn't exist because I can't see it or it's not a problem, right? They came in and they said, let's have a market-based solution, which was cap-and-trade. And the two parties, uh, uh, you know, they fought. Was it a fight? Of course it was a fight. But politics, is, you know, we're supposed to fight for, <laughs> for what we want. But they ultimately compromised. They passed, you know, the Clean Air Act and, amendments, which, of course, worked brilliantly right they they, they reduced uh, the, the the sulfur dioxide emissions at at a very low cost uh, you know, mitigated the problems of acid rain it's a you know it's a, it's a terrific example of the way things should work but when climate started to take center stage after this everything changed all, all of a sudden you know republicans were taking the, the position that it wasn't even a, a problem this thing that we called you know denialism took took hold and it wasn't just disagreement that right started to attack the motives of Greens, right? Climate was a hoax. It was a power grab. It was, you know, an attack uh, on ordinary people. So we, we ended up in a place that looked a lot like abortion or gun rights, other things, where instead of having a kind of bell-shaped curve of opinions, right, where, you know, you had a lot of people in the middle and only a few people to screens, so we have a dumbbell, right? All right. The, All the kind of opinions clustered. At the extremes, and so that's that's why I say it became the ultimate uh, wedge wedge issue, and you know why it's been really difficult to climb down and climb back from that. I mean, look what happened in the you know primaries in this season. Uh, You know, there were only um, you know one or two of the Republican candidates that could even partially climb down, even though everyone understands that that position is going to hurt them terribly in the in the general election.
0: Absolutely. We've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, we have much more with Fred. We're going to examine even more deeply this idea of a bipartisan solution to getting to green. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this.
1: News. 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 Opinion. News. Opinion.
0: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I'm so glad that you all tuned in. Our guest today is Fred Rich. He's got a brand new book coming out on Monday called Getting to Green, Saving Nature, a Bipartisan Solution. You know, Fred, this year's presidential primary season has been unique, to say the least. (laughs) But one of the most incredible aspects of both the Trump and the Sanders campaigns is the fact that the party establishment on both sides they've really been no match for the populist uprising for these two candidates. Does that give you hope that the power of the people might loosen the noose a little bit for Republican congressmen who want to buck the party on environmental issues?
2: Well, well, that's, that's very interesting. You know, you're the first person I've heard who's found a silver lining in the rise of Trumpism. <laughs> <laughs> but it would be great if it were. If it were. But I, I, I honestly can't say that I, I agree with you or that I see it that way. You know, I really think that Trump and Sanders are you know very different phenomena. Um, uh, each of them, you know, as opposed to the other. And uh, you know, I really think on what we're seeing on the Trump side is a is a is a is a is really fed by this sort of stew of deep, you know, resentments and fears, and and uh, you know, as populism, especially his brand, almost always is. And I, I don't really see green issues reaching the same emotional temperature. So I, just, I don't see the same kind of mechanism at work, Jill, that is likely to to, to uh, that is feeding, you know, the the, 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 the sort of the, what you refer to as the populist uprisings. I, I think what we need to do is look. I think there's a more a better example, which is really what happened at the beginning of Earth Day in 1970. I mean, the, the environmental movement was a, 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 a mass movement akin to the civil rights movement, uh, and on Earth Day in 1970, we had 20 million people participate. Uh, wow. It was completely bipartisan. It was led by a, a, a Democrat and by a Republican. Two thirds of the of the of the congressmen in the House and the Senate. You know, we're out and participated in Earth Day activities, and you know, you contrast that with with what happened in 2014 at the uh, climate march in New York, where you know, even giving the organizers the benefit of the doubt, you know, we were looking at 300,000 people. So I, I think what we need to do is I, I sort of envision not not the kind of anger that fuels, you know, Trump, but more of a. A bottoms up, you know, people really connected with, uh, environmental issues in their local place, but, but again becoming political, politically active and under the umbrella where, you know, it's, it's not viewed as a, as a, as a cause that signals that you're, uh, that you're on the right or the, or the left.
0: I liked in your book when you talked about how Richard Nixon looked out uh, onto the the parade of folks that were out on Earth Day, and many of them were very well-dressed, and he said, some of those people are Republicans.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You know, what's interesting, Jill, is that you know, Nixon was no nature lover, right? I mean, other right. people, you know, like Barry Goldwater was a member of the Sierra Club, okay, Uh he, you know, he, he was a real nature lover, but, but the one thing Nixon was was a damn good politician. And, okay. you know, he was not about to let the Democrats get out and head on, on the environment. Uh, 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 and, and, and really, I, I, think, I think ultimately one of the things that does give me hope here is that uh, purely from political self-interest, right, the, the place that, that Republicans are today is a, is a loser. Uh, and so if for no other reason, I think we're going to see a recalibration.
0: Well, I hope so. I mean, and that that plays into a very difficult campaign finance calculus about where the funding comes from and does that funding buy votes? And if there becomes a disconnect between what the, you know, some of the polluting industries funding can and can't do, if it becomes such that, you know, all of that campaign finance no longer buys winning votes, then I think we will see that happen, but right now there's there's a cottage industry um, in the state houses and in D.C. of politicos who tell candidates that all you need is enough funding, and that's all you need for the votes. And so I, I you know, I we'll see, we'll see how that happens. Um, you know, your book makes mention of Pope Francis's encyclical, Laudato Si, on the environment, and the notion that environmental protection is a moral imperative. Now, I'm no dummy. I know that there are evangelicals who don't necessarily hold the Pope in high regard or Catholics in high regard, uh, but – there are some Christian green movements as well. Do you expect that that line of thinking might ultimately influence the GOP's public policy direction?
2: Yeah, I, I really do, Jill. And and I mean, here's why. You know, the the current situation puts conservatives in a position of real cognitive dissonance, right? I mean, they they, they most conservatives believe in the centrality of of you know mo- morality and moral issues in 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 their life including in civic life they have deeply held values those values are their anchors but what but what are those values those values mandate that we treat future generations fairly right which is what sustainability is they mandate that we take responsibility for our actions which is essentially what what environmentalism is so i think What's missing here is not, you know, a set of deep values and so forth, that it's, it's very consonant with, with, with the, the green agenda, but, but conservative leaders who can open a door and say it's okay. And that's what I thought was so interesting about what the Pope did, and uh, uh, Bob Inglis, who's the evangelical uh, uh, congressman, you know, when he lost... He lost. He was primary from the right. He didn't go quietly into the sunset. Bob Inglis started touring evangelical churches in the South and conservative colleges all over the country saying, wait a second, there's a different way to be a conservative. Uh, and in fact, my values and my morality tells me I can't ignore this problem of climate change. and We have to do something about it. So when you have figures like that and like the Pope, what they really do is open the door, and I think people... I think people are prepared to step through it. I, I, you know, Jill, and again, look, look. I, you know, I, I don't. I'm not totally delusional, (laughs) you know, because they are realities of political life. But what what did we see the week before Pope Francis came? 11 GOP congressmen sponsored a resolution, House Resolution 424, basically saying that conservatives should, you know, engage positively in solutions for climate change. Uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, who's a Democrat, of course, but. You know, he was quoted in The Times the other day. He said he had eight to 12 Republican senatorial colleagues who were ready to take the leap, you know, on climate change. So I think if a few conservative leaders open the door, I think many people will walk through it.
0: I, I hope that that's true. And uh, and I know just from being close t- um, to Senator McCain's campaign back in 2008, I mean, uh, that was something that he and so many veterans, there are a lot of conservative veterans in this country who understand the connection between um, supporting our troops and not supporting uh, a continued dependence on foreign oil and, and what have you. And so you know, I think that there's something brewing there, and I agree with you. Now, your book does a great job of demonstrating that the onus isn't all on the Republicans and the right to embrace the Green Movement. There are some reforms that you recommend for the Green Movement, and I'd like for you to share some of those ideas with our listeners as well.
2: Sure. I, I'm. You know, this will probably get me in trouble with my green friends. But you know, <laughs> the, the measure me of this, of this book okay. <laughs> is that it's really intended to annoy both sides. So that's how I guess I know I'm doing my job, right? <laughs> but but uh, the things you know, I, I, I think we we really have to assess the environmental movement is almost fifty years old, and um, I think if we look backwards and take a sort of serious catalog at some of our mistakes, there's a pretty clear path. We have to maintain public credibility. We have to stop exaggerating. We we it's okay to admit uncertainty, right? Uh, we need to be more humble. You know, environmentalists are very preachy, right? We know it all. We, You know, you have to do this. You have to do that. I, I think we need to go – we've been trying to sell a nightmare for 30 years. So there's a commentator who said something just wonderfully. He so, said, you know, Martin Luther King stood up and said, I have a dream. And in 40 years, we went from segregation to an African-American president. Environmentalists stood up and said, I have a nightmare, We've been trying to sell fear. We have to project a hopeful vision that motivates people much more. I don't don't mean, you know, a Cassandra-like optimism, but, you know, if we do these things, what is the place that we're going to arrive and why is it good for us? We already talked about compromise and incrementalism. We've got to ditch this culture that compromise and incrementalism are are somehow, you know, apostasy. We've got to make it clear that we're not against growth. We're not against cap. We accept capitalism, the reality that it's the system that we have and we're going to have for the foreseeable future. We can't, we can't, we can't always paint business as the enemy. I mean, our job is to hold business accountable when they do bad things. Um, but equally we have to praise business when they do good things and show business a way forward how to be you know responsible environmental citizens i think we have to start making the moral case for conservation uh... and use that rich language that so many conservatives uh, react to Um so and i just i mean i can't give you the whole catalog because it's a long list so we don't have the time but but cities you know fifty percent of americans now live in cities the environmental movement is not going to move forward Unless we become relevant to people who live in cities, um, you know, we have to make those healthy, safe places, green spaces, uh, you, you know, uh, 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 and 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 make the work we do outside of cities relevant to cities. Uh, 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 so, you know, it's it's quite a long list, but I I, I really think that, and I, I should say that, you know, much of what I've just said, if if you had you know, leaders of big national environmental NGOs, they would agree with most of it. Most of them are working on a lot of these changes right now.
0: Absolutely. And a lot of them have been guests on Go Green Radio. We've had the uh, Natural Resources Defense Council uh, folks on quite a few times, and they have, you know, great scientists and lawyers who are really working with industry, with political leaders uh towards solutions and they're they're doing so hand in hand and and it's not an acrimonious relationship at all we've got to take a quick commercial break but when we come back we're going to talk to fred about what his notion of center green looks like a place where we can all gather that common ground what that looks like and how we get there so don't go away folks there's more go green radio right after this
1: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%?
0: Welcome back to Go Greet Radio. I'm so glad that you all tuned in. Just in case you need some catching up, I'll tell you this. Our guest today is... Fred Rich, and I'm so glad he joined us because he's got a brand new book that's called Getting to Green, Saving Nature, a Bipartisan Solution. It's coming out on Monday, and I have to say it's a very encouraging, very hopeful book in this space we find ourselves in where you know everything we see on cable news is hyper-partisanship. He really outlines some very pragmatic solutions where folks can get together on really, really vital environmental issues of the day. And in fact, he coins a term called center green, and it's kind of a safe space, if you will, for left and right to come together on environmental issues. And Fred, I'd love for you to explain what center green looks like and how
2: we get there. Okay, Joe, I'll do, I'll do my best. see and uh, you know it's some you call it a safe space because uh you know recently uh, uh being in the center has not been a very safe place for those of us <laughs> who have been centrist. We get shot at uh from the right and the left both, which i'm sure is going to happen here, but uh it's the right thing to do so what what do i what you know, what do I mean by by center green you know one of the things I mean is to distinguish between goals and means because I think once we Distinguish between okay, you know, do we want our cities swamped by you know rising you know sea level? Do we want you know do, do we want uh, the weather effects of storm? Do we want uh, the consequences of the loss of uh, you know coral reefs? And 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 we we can we, it's fairly easy or easier to get alignment, especially when you know as climate denialism abates and more people are just engaging in the issue. That you, you, you start with the consensus that yes we ought to do something about this it's kind of like what happened in 1990 with acid rain and then you know once you're kind of grounded in, it, in both sides accepting okay this is a problem that we've got to address you don't try to uh, you know force uh, some kind of agreement on what the means are to get there. You know, you accept that we're going to have disagreement. We're going to have debates. We're going to have, you know, one side will prefer regulation. The other side will prefer market mechanisms. But you engage and you compromise. The center green is a very pragmatic uh, approach. It tells environmentalists, don't dig your heels in and go for what's Optimal. You know, I, I, I articulate a two-part test. I say, you know, we should do something if it's going to make a real change in a real environmental problem, a real-world effect. I I'm, 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 have little patience with this idea that we spend our political capital to get largely symbolic victories. I don't want symbolic victories. I want real, real change in the real world right so that's the first part of the test and the second is is it politically feasible if it's dead on arrival let's not waste our time and money and energy advocating for it right so uh, you know okay maybe uh you know a carbon tax uh that um where we take the revenues and we apply them for r&d and alternative energy is the optimal solution but if you can't, if that's just dead on arrival, if if to get over the hump of of getting some bipartisan support is to make it revenue neutral, I'm just giving this as an example, right? Which is one of the things out there. Well, then fine, don't go to the, go to the optimal solution. Say fine, let's you know compromise. We'll do a revenue neutral carbon tax, but at least we're going to start to solve the problem. We're going to take a step. We accept incrementalism. Uh, you know, if we can't do plan A, go to plan B. So. Uh, it's also a place that that really changes who the audience is. We can't preach to the choir. We're not going to decarbonize the American economy over the opposition of half the country, right? right. We have to get uh, uh, people on the other side. Some group of them, not all of them, you know, some group of them. To, to buy into our agenda. That requires talking about it in different ways, you know, using the language of value, using the language of, 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 of morality, being sensitive to things the right cares about. So it's, it's not just a sort of different approach to the policy work, it's also a different approach to, to language and, and advocacy.
0: Absolutely. You know, a lot of our listeners, some of them, are involved in public policy making but a lot of them are everyday Americans. They're raising families, they're working hard. Fred, give them some concrete things that they can do to get involved and be part of a bipartisan solution to saving nature.
2: You know, Jill, I'm a great, and you know, again, sometimes sounds naive but I think in the long run it's really not. Uh, you know, we have to start by talking to each other. I have this campaign I've launched for Earth Day 2016. I have a, a website I mean, which just. Says, start by talking to somebody on the other side. You know, reach out to somebody you know uh, uh, on the other side of the political divide, and start talking about nature. You know, just what are your views to nature? You know, how do you feel about it? What does it mean to you? We we have to we have to disintermediate. We have to take. The, the partisan media out of the equation and have some direct contact. I'm, I'm a huge believer, you know, in civil society. DeTocqueville talked about the great energy of America, was that we were addicted to organizations. And my view is get involved in a local organization, not an organization where you send them a check and they send you an email telling you what to say. You know, I like civil society. It's truly interactive. You know, It's personal. You get out on a Tuesday night. You know, you go to a meeting. You go to your local land trust, right? You sit down with other people. You start working on 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 common cause. Uh, it, it's it's uh, it, this is where change is going to come from. It's going to be local. It's going to be the ground up. And the other thing I would say is I would just ask your 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 listeners. Yes, we we've been very focused as environmentalists on our personal behavior. You know, we we're going to drive a Prius and. I'm going to take my, you know, hemp pad to the farmers market. I'm going to change my behavior. <laughs> That's important, but it's not enough. We all have to become right. political. We have to make the politicians understand that we care about these issues and that we'll hold them accountable. So, you know, those are the major things that that I'm asking uh, uh, ordinary uh, individuals to do.
0: Well, and I think you know there are folks in the green movement that you know we've had on go green radio and they are uh, so intense and and their intensity is great that energy is needed and they will do things like protest large companies and banks over issues like mountaintop removal coal mining tar sands and fracking but sometimes their tactics are misunderstood by people who aren't as intense you know they might look at that kind of a protest and say well they're against the banks or they're against industry and when you really sit down and talk to them about what their core concerns are it's oftentimes things like water quality, human health, and i mean who's against those things it's like we spoke about in the earlier segments that is common ground that we can all stand on and you know in the in the remaining couple of minutes that we have in the show i'd really like for you to talk about how the right and the left can come together over basic things like protecting drinking water and human health and what that might look like in the public policy world i mean we've just had you know what's what's happened in flint michigan as a stark example of what can happen when we're not focused on these basic things we think that you know we'll turn on the tap and clean water comes out and nobody's thinking about how does that actually happen and how can we ensure that that actually happens we take these things for granted so tell us how we can use issues like that to come
2: together fred well, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a great example. I mean, I, you know, I, I too, admire the, the energy. But, you know, just take the anti-fracking movement. You know, it, it's done a lot of good. It helps us to understand the, the problems. But if the only solution they're advocating is to ban fracking, that's obviously not going to happen uh, in the country any time in the near future. But there's a very real step we could come together and bring Republicans in to do, which is to increase the regulation of fracking. I mean, Fracking, uh, uh, you, you know, there is a lot of da- uh, damage caused by methane leakage, and what we really need is tight regulation and enforcement of regulation. And, you know, that's actually something that on the right and the left people ag- agree with. You know, when the, when you move the dialogue from banning fracking, which the right would see as this, you know, completely unrealistic sort of, you know, broad-based attack on fossil fuels, uh, and, and a lot of environmentalists are horrified by because, of course, the transition to, to, to from coal to natural gas has been made a meaningful impact in, in, in greenhouse gas emissions, right? There is something Absolutely. we could get together to do, which is to there regulate fracking and try to attack that methane leakage to try to uh, address the water disposition quality. Will it result in tracking being not done in some places? Sure. Very but at doable. least it sets ground w- rules and, and business can go ahead. So it's a small example. Absolutely. But if you if you just scale back your ambitions, there is a place where we can work together.
0: You, you bet. Well said, Fred. Thanks. Thank you so much for being on Go Green Radio. And folks, we're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. And until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.